few, and we will be praying, and I have been praying for the search team because that, that is a big deal in this point of transition. And I'm, I'm grateful to be able to come and, and share God's Word with you periodically. I love to be able to communicate God's Word and connect with you and connect you to, to what God's doing in the world because God's still alive and well. I mean, God's doing a great work through See Me Covenant, and it's a joy to be able to come alongside you uh, this morning and, and share with you God's Word. There's a, a familiar author, maybe you're aware of this author, A.W. Tozer. And A.W. Tozer is an is a author that, that I have often enjoyed, and he has this quote that I'd like to share with you today. It's, it goes like this. Nope, that's not where it's at. It's uh, right there. Thank you. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Anybody heard that quote before? It's kind of a familiar quote, but, but not to everybody here today. It's a, it's a great little phrase that I have found helpful because the most important thing about you is not your job. The most important thing about you is not your education, your health, or your kids. The most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you imagine God. So a number of years ago, I had a chance to um, be a, a pastor for a basketball team. So a friend invited me to go on this trip with his basketball team, and it was kind of a stretch for me because I don't really play basketball, but, but I love investing in people. And, and this, this friend asked me to just do these Bible studies with the athletes as, we've been tra- as we travel around. And, and some of them were college athletes, a few were professional. One guy played for the Utah Jazz, and he was a mammoth of a man. He's like seven foot tall, like, like literally, just full of muscles. And, uh, and I got to know him, I got to know the team, and we would, we would do these Bible studies. And on one particular day, I, I gave him this quote. I said, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And, and this guy that, that played for the Jazz started thinking about that. And he responded by saying, for, for most of my life, I thought that the most important thing about me was how tall I am. Or, or the skills that I have as a basketball player. Or the contracts that I would get as a basketball player. But now I am famous. I, I, I do know lots of people. And now I have lots of things that are, are going well for me. I got money. I've got friends. But I don't know God. I don't have a clear understanding of what it means to know God. Can you help me? More recently, I had lunch with a friend of a friend. A friend invited me to have a lunch with his friend with his buddy, and we met, and he's a businessman, and we talked about his business. He's like that entrepreneur. He's always got ideas, and, and he asked me this question as we were in our conversation. He says, have you always known God this well? He says, You've, it looks like you know God, but have, have you always known God for, for this well for so long? I said, no way. Like, for most of my life, I didn't know who God is. I, I, I had very bad misunderstandings of, of who God is. In fact, when I was growing up, I thought God was this big judge in the sky watching everything I was doing wrong. And because I was doing plenty of things wrong, I said, God, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm just going to go do my thing. And then I, I met God through this sporting experience, and I experienced his forgiveness and grace and new life. And I started reading the Bible and, and, and growing in my relationship with God. I said, I, I, don't, I don't know God perfectly, but I do know God. And he asked me the same question, can you help me? Because I want to know God. I want to have a relationship with God because A.W. Tozer was right. What comes to your mind when you hear the word God, when you think about God, when you imagine God, that's the most important thing about you. It's not your job. It's not your health. It's not your kids. It's not your education. It's not your resume. 
The most important thing about you is what you imagine when you hear. So what comes to your mind when you think about God? Because all of us have different perceptions of God. Some are more accurate than others. Some have a true, accurate, biblical description of God. And some have like an inaccurate, an unhelpful understanding of who God is. But none of us have arrived. None of us have a perfect understanding of who God is. All of us can grow in our knowledge of God. And that's why we're going to talk about God over the next two weeks. I'm going to be here next week and this week. And my desire is to help us get to know God better. Because in the Bible, God describes himself in all sorts of different ways. Through stories and psalms and proverbs and testimonies. But one of the ways that God describes himself in the Bible is by using anthropomorphisms. I don't know if you know what that word is. I had to look it up. But, but I, I, I learned this word in seminary. Anybody know what an anthropomorphism is? An anthropomorphism is simply a physical description or physical features that describe God. So God in the Bible is described as having eyes, ears, arms, hands, a heart. Now God literally doesn't have all those physical features, but God can see, God does hear, God does feel, God is real. And this week and in the next week and maybe beyond that, we're going to look at some of these ways that God describes himself in human terms so that we can get to know him better. And the first anthropomorphism that we want to look at today is God's eyes. God's eyes, because God can see everything all the time. Nothing is out of God's sight. Now, growing up, uh, a real close friend of mine sang this song in church. It, it goes something like this. I, I didn't grow up in the church, but she, she shared this song with me. It goes, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is watching down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Anybody know that song? You want to sing it with me? Be careful, little hands, what you touch. Be careful, little hands, what you touch. Come on now. For the Father up above is watching down in love. So be careful, little hands, what you touch. It's kind of a frightening song. I mean, isn't it? I mean, I know the word love is in there. But the theme of the song is be careful. God has eyes and he's watching you. And he's watching you to what? To, to, to almost punish you if you touch, see, or do something wrong. So my friend had this song in her mind, this perception, perception of God's eyes that caused her to say, you know, I'm not really interested in that God. I don't want to hang around a God that has eyes that is watching me to maybe punish me. And, and she sang this song, and the question that I'd like us to think about this morning is this. Is that really what God's looking for? Is God really looking down from heaven to evaluate what you touch, what you say or do? Is God making a list, checking it twice to see who's been naughty or nice? Is God looking at my behavior? Or is God looking for something completely different? 
Because the Bible teaches us that God can see. He can see you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. But is he really looking to see if you've been good for goodness sake? Or is he looking for something else? Is God looking for someone else? Is God searching the world for something very specific? If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn or find 2 Chronicles 16. In 2 Chronicles 16, the words are going to be on the screen. You can follow on the screen. You can follow on your phone or your Bible. But in 2 Chronicles 16, there's this great passage about God's eyes. And we're going to learn about his eyes to understand his character and who he is so we get to know God better. Because in 2 Chronicles 16, just to give you a little history, Moses had already led the people out of Egypt. The Israels have settled in the promised land. You've already got Saul, David, and Solomon as king. But now the kingdom is divided. If you remember, there's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Judah's in the south, Israel's in the north. And there are three kings and one prophet in this story. And just to give you the, the names of the story, the three kings is Asa, Basha, Ben-Hadad, and the prophet Hanani. Asa is in the south, he's the southern king. Basha's in the north, Ben-Hadad is from Aram, way north, and then there's the prophet Hanani. And these three gentlemen have this encounter that enables us to understand who God is and what God is searching for. 2 Chronicles 16, we're going to go 1 through 8. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Once again, the kingdoms are divided. They're not on good terms. You, you have the northern kingdom, Israel. Basha's is over the northern kingdom, and he built up this border city of Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the southern kingdom of Judah. There's tension between the northern and southern kingdoms. There's this city that's being built up, and so there's a, there's a wall, if you will, like you would see in Israel now or the Berlin Wall then. There's this wall to prevent people from entering or leaving the southern kingdom. So Asa is concerned. The, the king of the southern kingdom is concerned, so he attacks a third ruler, named Ben-Hadad for help. Asa then took the silver and gold out of his treasuries of the Lord's temple and out of his own palace, and he sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. So, so you kind of have the southern kingdom, southern California, kind of the L.A. area, right? That's us. And then, and then you got San Francisco, you got the northern kingdom. That's, that's, ben that's, um, that's not Ben-Hadad, that's ba uh, Basham. Basha, and then, sort of like in Portland, you, you, you got Ben-Hadad, right? So, so that's sort of the typography, that's the geography, that's what's going on. And then kind of Fresno is Rama. That's where you, you don't want anybody coming in and out of Fresno for good reason. And, and then, but, 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 he, but Asa says, this is what he says to uh, Ben-Hadad. So Ben-Hadad's up in Portland. Ben-Hadad's the king of Aram. He's ruling in Damascus. And he says, hey, let there be a treaty between me and you. 
There was one between my father and your father. See, I'm sending you silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. And Asa uses a popular political technique to solve his problems. It's called bribery. Yes. He says, I'm going to give you some money. I'm going to give you some silver or gold. I want you to break the treaty and come help me. And apparently it worked. After counting the silver and gold, Ben-Hadad agreed with King Asa and he sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. And he conquered Ijon, Dan, Abel, Mayim, and all the shore cities of Naphtali. And when Basha heard this, he stopped building in the south, he stopped building Ramah, and he abandoned the work. Asa's plan worked. He protected his people. He defeated the threat of Basha. He built a strategic alliance with Ben-Hadad, but it didn't stop there. Listen to this. He said, then the king Asa brought all the men of Judah, and they carried away from Ramah the stones timber that Basha had been using and built up Geba and Mitzpah. And Asa then took the building materials away from Basha and built up his own border town in Geba, Mitzpah. And the people must have been ecstatic. Because he used the materials that Basha was trying to build Rama to build up his own border town. I mean, the headlines, the tweets, the posts would have all said, Asa is the man. I mean, Asa saved the day. He, he defeated the threat. He created the alliance. He built up the border towns at no additional cost to the taxpayers. I mean, people were cheering. I'm sure Asa must have felt pretty good about himself. I mean, after doing all this work, all, all this military brilliance, he, he probably felt good about himself the day that he defeated Basha. But God was not happy. God was not pleased. God sent Hanani, the prophet, to speak to Asa. And Hanani didn't have much to say about Asa's brilliant military Maneuvers. He did not mention how happy the men of Judah must have felt when they built up their border city. This is what Hanani said. At that time, Hanani, the seer, the prophet, came to Asa, king of Judah, and he said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and the Labians a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. First, Hanani rebukes Asa for trusting in a pagan king, Ben-Hadad, instead of the Lord. First, he rebukes him, and then he reminds him of his past. Hanani reaches back to a previous battle where Asa trusted the Lord. Back in chapter 14, Asa marched against the Cushites with a large army, with large spears and the large um, shields. And he, he did everything humanly possible to prepare for the battle, but then he prayed to the Lord. And this is his prayer. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and he said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. Asa prayed, help us, God. 
We need you, Lord. We've done everything we can to prepare for battle. We have large shields. We have large spears. We have a battle plan. But there's no one like you. You are God. Don't let our enemies prevail over us. Protect us. Help us. We need you. And God heard Asa's prayer. God responded to Asa's request. He protected and fought for Asa. Hanani reaches back and reminds Asa of this previous battle, this previous point in his life when he trusted God. And then he said these remarkable words about God's eyes. Remember, this is an anthropomorphism. God doesn't have eyes, but he sees. And he's searching. And he's looking for something specific. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. The eyes of the Lord range. That's the first thing that we notice about God's eyes is that they range. They're looking, searching for something, someone very specific. God's eyes range back and forth, searching intently to strengthen those that belong to Him. This is a verse worth memorizing. This is a verse worth internalizing. This is a a verse worth embedding into your mind what what it means to understand who God is. He has eyes and He's searching. Now, I'm not a bird watcher, but I did a little research on bird watching. And apparently, a good bird watcher, there is, um, there's like a website, there's a phone line, there's, there's posts that, you, that when a rare bird is found, they, they kind of let all the information out to let the bird watchers go find that rare bird. And the bird watchers go to great lengths to find those birds. They get up early in the morning. And they pack their bags and they get their equipment out and they get to their spot and then they, they, they sort of take their binoculars or telescopes and they, and they pan the sky, searching back and forth, back and forth until they find that rare bird. And that's what God does. God pans back and forth, back and forth, is ranging throughout the earth, searching for that rare individual. Searching for that rare individual whose heart is fully surrendered to him. He's not looking to see if you've been naughty or nice. He's not seeing the song, be careful little hands or little eyes, what you touch or see. He's not looking at your accomplishments. He's not looking at your education. He's looking at your heart. And and, and he's always been looking at your heart. Christianity has always been a religion of the heart. When choosing the king, God spoke to Samuel about what he's looking for in choosing a leader or choosing a pastor. And, And when David's brothers were all lined up in front of Samuel to see who the next king would be, this is what we read. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at at the heart. That's what God is looking for. 
Your heart represents your life. It's your core values. It's your inner self. It's that combination of your mind, will, and emotions. It's your, your, your true self. And God is looking to see if your heart is fully surrendered to Him. That your heart is, is, is yielded to Him completely. There's a saying in the investment world. Don't have all your eggs in one basket. Have, has anyone heard that before? Don't, don't have your eggs in one basket. You know, like, you know, particularly right now when the economy is fluctuating up and down. So diversify your portfolio. That's the wisdom when it comes to investments, when it comes to economics. Don't have all your eggs in one basket. But God says just the opposite when it comes to your heart. Have all your eggs in my basket. Fully trust me. Worship me. Delight in me. Don't trust in your finances. Don't trust in your intellect. Don't trust in your family. Fully surrendered heart to me. That's what he's looking for. That's where he's ranging throughout the earth for something very specific. A heart that's fully his. And did you notice why he's scanning the globe in search of a heart that's fully his? Not to punish, not to shame, but to strengthen. God comes to strengthen you. That's why he comes after you. That's why he's, he's looking for you. He, he's watching. He's searching. He's ranging back and forth for one reason. And that's to strengthen your heart that's fully his. Because he knows we're weak. He knows what you're going through. He knows the challenges that you face at work. He knows the health difficulties that you're experiencing. He knows the difficulties in your family and the rejection that you feel. Because he knows that we're weak. We get tripped up. We fall into sin. We get lost. And we fail to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we need help. We can't do it on our own. And it's almost as if all day, every day, God gives us this sign. And, and on one side of the sign, it, it reads, help me, God, I need you. God, I can't make it on my own. My marriage is in crisis. My children aren't walking with me. Or my parents, they're in a health crisis. God, help me. I need you. My finances, I'm not going to make it to the end of the month. But, but we also have the opposite side of the sign. God, don't bother me. I'm fine. I can do this on my own. I've saved enough money. I've got enough protection. Go help somebody else that's really in need, God. Don't pick on me. Don't punish me, God. Don't bother me. I'm fine. And all day, every day, God is looking at our sign. He's looking to see if our hearts reflect, God, help me, I need you. I'm not going to make it without you. Or if it's, don't bother me, God. I'm fine. This is what Asa's heart said. This is what Asa's heart was communicating to God. Asa 
looked at his circumstances and, and he said, you know, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I just conquered the northern kingdom. I just built up the, the border towns. I got everybody cheering my name. God, don't bother me. I'm pretty good. In fact, I'm fine. And, and, and if we continue in the story, Asa kept his sign up. Listen to these words from Asa. This is in 2 Chronicles 16.10. Asa was angry with the seer. So this is just three years later after he became king. He's, Asa was angry with the seer because of this. And he was so enraged he put him into prison. And at the same time Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. And in the 39th year of Asa's reign, he was afflicted with a disease on his feet. Though his disease... Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord. He kept up his sign. Don't bother me, God. I can handle this. I'm fine. And he died holding up his sign. And the frightening thing about Asa's story is that he started off so well. He started off fully surrendered to God. He started off loving and worshiping God. But, but, but he trusted in the Lord. He prayed to the Lord. He threw his grandmother out of the town because she was worshiping idols. That's how committed he was to the Lord. But somewhere along the way, he drifted away from God. Maybe it was a bad experience at a worship service. Maybe it was God's people that, that turned him away. Maybe he, he had he, something difficult happened in his life. But for whatever reason, his perception of God changed. And instead of fully trusting him, he says, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. God, I'm fine. And this is what he held to his death. And the question that I want to ask you this morning is what sign are you holding up? What does your heart read? Does your heart of heart say, God, I don't need you, I'm fine. You know, the best way to know if that's true is to look at your prayer life. What have you been praying about? Are you praying at all? What, 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 what is an indication that your heart is full? What, what is your, or are you saying, help me, God. I need you. I'm not going to get through this without you. When God sees your heart, what does he read? I'm going to ask the band to come up, and I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer, because maybe you're here today, and you're going through a difficult time. Maybe there, there's, there's a challenge that you're facing. Maybe you're in a war. You're not in a war like Asa is with the northern kingdom, a physical war, but there's a war going on for your children. They're drifting away. Or there's a war for your marriage. Or there's a battle against sin going on, and you're losing. And, and, and you know that you're losing. And maybe this is a moment in your journey, in your relationship with God, when you can say, God, I need you. I need help. God loves that prayer. That's what, he's, that's what he's waiting to hear out of your heart. I need help. I need you. I can't make it on my own. Or maybe you're here this morning and, and things aren't going really bad. In fact, they're going really well. 
you're succeeding in marriage, or you're succeeding with your family, you're succeeding in business, you're succeeding in your education. But you know inside your heart, you're just doing it on your own strength. If you were to look inside your heart of hearts, you just know that I'm, I'm not really relying on the Lord fully. I'm not fully surrendered to God. And maybe this is a moment where you can surrender fully your family, your business, your life to your God. Or maybe you're here today and, 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 and you don't have a sign, you know, that that's don't bother me or help me. Your sign's upside down like you don't know right from wrong or left from right. Like you, you're just at a, at a difficult spot with your relationship with God. And, and, and maybe this is a time where you can just cry out to God, God, help me. I can't do this. I need you. I, I can't make this without you. I, I am at a loss. I, I was, um, my, my oldest daughter is, is 18. No, no, how old is she? She's, she's, a, she's a teenager. She's a senior, senior in high school. So she's 17. And she is a cross-country runner, and she got an injury last year, and it really hindered her ability to run. And, and then so she was training this summer to kind of prepare for this, this season, and, and we were playing football, and I threw a ball to her, and I broke her finger. I know, I'm terrible. And, and, and then, two weeks later, she gets bit by a spider, gets an infection on her leg. So she's out for six weeks. Like, literally, she had to go to the hospital. She had to spend a night in the hospital because of the infection. So we're talking six weeks of training gone. And I was at a worship service last week, two, yeah, about a week and a half ago. And uh, I was during the worship set, music was playing, and, and I was like, God, I need you. Because you know, as parents, when your kids are hurting, you're hurting. You know, as grandparents, that's how it works. I was like, God, I, I don't know if she, I don't, and it's not just the physical, it's the emotional. Like, this is her senior year, she wants to do well, six weeks going on, and she still isn't out of the woods. So, God, I said, God, just protect her heart. You know, of course I want her to run, but God, don't let her fall into like a, a slump, a depression, into a difficult season. And, and during this worship service, I did something that I very, I can only count like on, my, on one hand how many times I've done this. But there was a time for prayer up front. And they said, if anybody needs prayer, come up front and I'll pray for you. I was the first one there. I said, I need you, God. I don't understand this. I think there's more going on than just this physical stuff. I think there's like a spiritual battle for the values and heart of my daughter. And I can't win that battle just by being a good dad. I need you to intercede on behalf of my daughter. So I prayed. And so that's the invitation for you. We're going to do this three-song set. And during this time, Melody's going to be here, right there. I'm going to be here. And um, it's an opportunity to do this is to hold up a sign. Say, help me, God, I need you. And to hold it loud or high and, and, and to say it proud. And say, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. So, so the worship team is going to come and the worship, they're, they're going to lead us in worship. The, then we're going to have this, this time to fully surrender to the Lord. And you can do that in your seat. There's no magic about coming forward. But it is an invitation. And if you want to come to the altar and have someone pray for you to say physically what you know is going on internally, God, I need you, I, I can't do this, that's your invitation. The ushers are going are to come down and, and, and 
take the, receive the offering. So you, got, you, you can come down and I'm going to pray for our, our offering. It's just, a, it's just an expression of our worship. It's an expression of our willingness to surrender fully our resources to the Lord. But as the offering's you know, being passed, the band is going to lead us in worship and, and you're going to have an opportunity to come and pray or to surrender in your, own, in your own way to the Lord. But God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find in it. We thank you for this story of these three kings and the truth about your eyes. That you're not looking to harm us or hurt us or punish us, but you're looking for one reason to strengthen us and you're looking for one person one heart fully surrendered to you and so lord holy spirit do a work inside of us to reveal anything that we're holding back from you reveal to us anything that we're holding on too tightly and in this moment May we fully surrender our lives, our families, our finances, our problems to you. And may you strengthen us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.